All right, let's pray, and then we'll dive into our lesson. Father, um, life in a sin-cursed world, living shoulder-to-shoulder with sin-cursed people, uh, we all would agree, I'm sure, that that life stinks sometimes. And so when we encounter these amazing and big truths of who you are, that you are sovereign, that you are holy, and then this week that you are loving, um, God, I pray that these truths would sink deeply into our hearts and that our hearts and our minds would wrap um, wrap themselves around these truths so that when um, when faced with trials that are sure to come that we would be um, deeply rooted and grounded in your character so that um, we can trust your heart of love and of sovereignty and of holiness when the worst comes and when we are on top of the mountain enduring the best. And so I pray that you would help us help these truths to to change the way we, we walk, the way we crawl, the way we pray, the way we live in everyday life so that we can please you um, both on the mountaintop, and in the valley. In your name we pray. Amen. So last week, um, we discussed God's holiness, and we said that God's holiness is, that the, the central idea is that He is set apart. And we said that there's two trajectories along which He is set apart. One is that He is majestic. In other words, He is just uniquely other. There is... Him as the creator, and then there's his creation. We are his creation, and then there's him. And so he is majestic. But we also said that he is set apart in his holiness, that is, in his moral purity. And that's often what we think of when we refer to the word holiness. The idea that he is completely perfect, always right, completely pure, unstained by sin. Therefore, we said, we said a lot of things about this, but um, if I could summarize it, therefore he answers to no one, right? Because there is creator and creation, and he is the creator. He is the majestic one. He is holy other. Therefore, no one answers, or, or he answers to no one because there's no one above himself. And we also said that because he's morally pure, Everything that he does is right all the time. He never can make a mistake. He can never stub his toe. He never can do something that is even out of sync or out of character because he is holy. He is always consistent with his own character. He always does what's right. And then we said that we are to pursue holiness, not in the majestic sense, because we can't be that, but in the moral purity sense of holiness, we are to pursue holiness in this life because we are God's children and what must bear his resemblance. First Peter 1.16 said that we are to be holy because God is holy. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that identity that we have in that we are born into his family and that family resemblance today. And then lastly, 
spirit-energized effort to grow in holiness. And two, keeping our eyes fixed on the gospel will result in effective, in an effective, productive relationship with God. It will protect us from falling into unrepentant sin, and it will, we will receive a warm embrace as we enter God's kingdom. That's Second Peter one that we discussed last week. And this week we're going to look at God's love, and so we're going to look at, um, or we're going to attempt to discover what it means that God is loving, and how it impacts the way we live. And I know that the last three weeks have all kind of been the same uh, goal statement, but it's to discover God's attribute, and then try to tease out in, in the limited time we have what that means for our lives. So the blanks are loving and impacts. So my first question is going to be highly uh, discussion-based. So I'm asking you to participate. Actually, the first two, maybe all of them, we'll see. I guess it just depends on how it goes. Because if you're a bunch of mutes, I'm going to have to make something up again, and I don't want us to do that. So at least this week I'm prepared, So uh, in case you don't say anything. So number one, how would you describe God's love? And feel free to use scripture uh, or just your own personal experience. But how would you describe God's love? It's unconditional. Okay. God is everything. holy love, right? You can say, you can like go around twice if you have to. to like, we can keep talking. This isn't... So Pete, you could say something else. You don't have to just say one thing. <laughs> so far, I think you've hit everything. I mean, you've hit lots of things on my list. You want to do what's in our best interest all the time. Right? I mean, I can't ever... I I have this phrase stuck in my head that it's like uh, he endured with great patience, but I think that 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 phrase is in a different context, but I think 2 Peter talks about that, how he, he was... He... Why hasn't he come back? You know, it talks about God's slowness, and it seems like man, like, is he not making good on his promise? And no, he's patient because he's giving people time to repent and believe. 
and that patience, I think, continues with us, right? Because we're a bunch of stubborn hoofs. Yeah, can you imagine our kids treating us the way we treat God? How hard it would be at times to love the, you know, friends, kids. So, how would you describe God's love? If it's truly inexhaustible, as Betty said, then we should be able to be here for quite a long time. I think one word that really describes it is grace. I mean, he's a just God, and we all know that. But even with his justness, gives us a, a measure of grace that by no stretch of the imagination we deserve. And yet he still offers that to us. I guess I just think of how he reaches down to us. She can't hear you. You have to speak louder. No, I can't hear anybody. It's that thing. (laughs) What? Can we turn it off? Do we know how to turn that off? Is there a button on it? Is there a switch on that one? We got it, John. Maybe, maybe not. Can you just hold it? Yeah. (laughs) All right, try again. Just how he reaches down to us. Yeah, he he initiates. Yeah. Might not be that. Might be the one on the other side of the wall that we hear too, though. So let me, uh, this is a very similar question, so you're going to have to really think with me, um, but how does, and, and this is like a, okay, I, I'm not trying to insult anyone's intelligence here, okay, but I think it's a good question to think about, and this is a good place to think about it. How does the gospel demonstrate God's love? How does the gospel demonstrate God's love? And of course, all of us, like, come on, Troy, that's an easy one. Okay, well, let's say even the easy stuff. Like, let's let's think out loud about even something as simple as that. Like, force yourself to think about, okay, well, what is the gospel? What does it entail, all of it? And how does that demonstrate God's love? Because the gospel, as I like to think about it at times, is like this beautiful multifaceted diamond. And you can just turn it, and you can just look at one facet and turn it and look at another facet and just admire it from different angles. And whether you're thinking justification or adoption or sanctification or all these big terms, or you can make it little terms, it doesn't matter, but the gospel is just so de- uh, deep and, and wide and vast. So how does that beautiful, multifaceted diamond demonstrate God's love to us? 
So, uh, yes, that's the, the humming. It's a nice, nice sound, isn't it? Um, so let's just think about, let, let's kind of tease that out more. So, the doctrine of justification. So, big word. The doctrine of justification just simply is we are declared righteous in Christ, right? We're clothed in Christ's righteousness when we repent of our sins and believe in Him. So we have a new identity in Christ. So how is that a demonstration of God's love? exact opposite of what the gift that we are given, right? That we're not even asking for it. Yeah, we're not even asking for it. I mean, we, and our our nature is so contrary and opposed to that that we just, it's not something we even have a desire for unless the Spirit of God works in our hearts. So, what about um, the atonement? So that is the sacrifice of Christ. So Christ atones for our sins, so he makes his blood and death covers our sins. How is that a demonstration of God's love? Okay, come on. You guys are in junior highers now. We can... We can we can all communicate about this. He took the punishment that we deserve. He was our he was our substitute, right? So here we are. We should be on the cross, 
condemned for our sins. And He stands in our place. And covers our sins, right? I mean, it's, it's like the Passover in the Old Testament. The blood, He passes over, He covers, He atones. That's what He's done with every one of our sins that we've ever committed in the past, that we presently commit even in this moment, and commit in the future. It's amazing to think about for the whole, for whole humanity, he covered it. Past, present, future, every human being that accepts the gift. What about, um, <clears throat> like, just the specific aspect of the fact that when he he left heaven, and we don't we don't often think about that, right? Because we just assume, like, oh well, of course he's going to come down, and of course he's going to come down because he's God, right? I mean, he's but like Jesus. And we'll talk about this more, like, in a couple weeks, but, like, Jesus was, it was submissive to the Father in some, like, mind-numbing way, right? Like, in the doctrine of the Trinity that none of us fully understand. But he was somehow subordinate or submissive to him and exited the throne of heaven. Philippians 2. He humbled himself and became like us. I mean, it doesn't get much more sacrificial than that, right? And then he died as our sinless substitute to atone for our sins. What about, like, the other side of salvation? Kind of like the benefits that accrue to us. Like adoption. about one of the words you just used to describe us. We are his what? His children. His family. <laughs> yeah. Like, he you is our father. Adoption, yeah. He's our father. And we have been adopted into his family. That means we were once not his family. Like, uh, Ephesians 2. We were, by our sinful nature, objects of God's wrath. We were dead in our sins by our own nature that we inherited and by our own choice, that's what we were. And so, in light of that picture, then in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, But but God, in His great love, in His great mercy, He made us alive when we were dead. So God took the initiative and he he went and he looked down on sinful humanity and he took the initiative and he moved. That's just an amazing thought. We were orphans by choice. 
we were running from our Creator, and He chased us. <clears throat> or what about the picture of the prodigal son's father? Ran what? to his ran to his son as he was coming back and embraced him. Yeah. Took him right back. Well, even what preceded that? He gave him his inheritance. And after he had spent it, he still took him back. I mean, think about, just think about the scene of that. <clears throat> so you got your son that's a long way. Who knows where he's at? Is he ever going to come back? I mean, it's not like they had cell phones back then where he could, you know, send a text to his dad from the pigsty. Hey, I think I'm ready to come home. You know, he didn't send him an email. <clears throat> His father had to be, you know, like, you get that vision of, like, he's, I mean, I even have this wrong-headed vision of, like, he's peering through the screen door. Well, there probably weren't screen doors then, <laughs> you know, but, like, he's peering through the door, just, you know, like, checking, looking down this long dirt road, like, down this, I just have this vision of this house, which, you know, with the screen door, and he's, you know, like, it's like, you know, I don't know, some really old show from my vantage point. And he's looking down, and, and he sees this guy off in the distance. He probably hardly recognizable. And he's walking down the dirt road, probably slumped over with who knows what he's wearing. Maybe he could smell him that far off, you know. And he sees him, and he bolts out the door. It doesn't matter that... He stinks like pigs. It doesn't matter that he's got nothing. And he puts his arms around him and he embraces, embraces him and he walks him, welcomes him back into the family. I mean, how, it, it's one thing, I think, at times to, you know, pick up this person who seems to be this helpless individual on the street, <laughs> right? And we think, oh, that poor person. But this son rejected his father. How I mean, how much more deep of a wound to someone's love is that kind of rejection? And he embraced him and welcomed him back into the family and gave him the full rights of sons. That's the love of our father. He he loves us unconditionally, no matter what we do. <clears throat> we still have to repent of our sins, but he still loves us. Yeah. And it goes it goes on even after that initial event in our life. It goes on because the New Testament talks about that. When we still sin, God sees Jesus. He doesn't look at it. He looks at us and sees his son. It's covered. Yeah. <clears throat> trying to remember where it is. Um, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. 
Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not take light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. I mean, the father loves us. That same father who made that that track, that running track to embrace the rebellious son, disciplines us in love, not ever out of anger. Which is staggering to me to think when I face the two cutest children in the entire world and they make me mad. And I have to take a deep breath because I refuse to discipline them out of my anger. And sometimes I have to not discipline them because I'm angry. (laughs) But he always can discipline us because he always is loving and never sinfully angry. Like even his discipline of us is is love. Every every angle of the gospel demonstrates his love to us. Every angle. Which is pretty spectacular. So I'm gonna do I'm gonna attempt to do this. You'll have to indulge me. I have told you I've confessed my mad love for the music of Stephen Curtis Chapman. And so he just has come out with a new album and there are a couple songs in here that are quite fitting, but this one in particular, I heard this song at, he has an, uh, an adoption orphan care nonprofit organization called Show Hope, and I want to say it was two years ago, I heard this song right after he wrote it at this event that we were at, and he's now recorded it on the album that he just released last week, and you'll pick up the language of a text I'd like to read to you first. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 3. And if you don't, it's okay, because I'll read it. <clears throat> but 1 John chapter 3 says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And and this is, this song is based on that. So I'll try to turn it up loud enough. I won't make you listen to the whole thing. You can get the message of it, and then we'll move on. That we can say 
listen the whole CD with you, but we're not going to do that. Because you pay good money to hear, do more than just listen to music. So, go ahead play though. <laughs> the gospel is the greatest demonstration of God's love. Because he, as that song said, He took us as orphans and slaves and He made us His children. And He did that at great cost to Himself. And that is just flat out amazing. So how does that affect or impact the way we live? Obey him, obey his word, and want to know him more by reading his word and studying. And all that we can say is thank you, thank you. So there ought to be a large dose of appreciation 
What else? I mean, without, with, without God's love, we would not have the ability, right? Because, as Karen said earlier, God initiated, right? It's God who first loved us, John, or First John chapter 4 says. This is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. So, he initiated it, and his love through the regenerating work of the Spirit, gave our dead hearts life, right? And when our dead hearts were given life, we now have an ability to please God and to love God, right? We have the ability to love now because He has loved us. Because if He didn't love us, we can't love anybody else. Because we don't have, we wouldn't have a heart of love. also have the hope of eternal life. Yeah. Which in a day and day out basis hope is a pretty necessary thing. We know who God is but do we really know God? Do we know of God? I don't know if I'm putting it in the right words. Maybe that that actually probably goes back all the way to like the first lesson, knowing facts about God and then knowing God. Yeah. Having a relationship with Him. First uh, John, I think, chapter four says that God is love. So how does God's love impact the way we live? Well, He is love. And if he is love, we ought to, now as our spiritual father, we are are called to represent him well, right? Ephesians chapter 4 says that we are to live a life, live in a manner or live a life worthy of the calling that we've been called. That's, in other words, represent him well. Or 2 Corinthians 5 where it talks about <clears throat> that we are his ambassadors. So we've been given this gift uh, or ministry of reconciliation to go and reconcile the world unto him, not counting people's sins against them. But we are his, he, we are his representatives. How can we be representatives of, of him, his ministry of reconciliation, if we are not reconcilers ourselves, if we are not lovers ourselves? There is this attachment there's a representation I think it can be made more clear in 1st John chapter 3 listen as I read verses 9 and 10 it says no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him they cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God you get like the repetition that John has here this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. 
Then just two chapters later, he says, In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So there's this idea that I, I, I tried to like float in there in the introduction about God's holiness. But I want to just try to connect the thought with you tonight is that when we are born again, when we are born of God, we now have a new identity. We have a new father. We represent him now, right? We, we in our lives, walk around with the DNA of our father. Just like I walk around with Ken Fisher's DNA and I represent my dad and my mom. Because I have their DNA, I have their nature, I have their nurture, and I have their last name. We now have the name, right? He has called us by name. He is our Father. He has embraced us as His children, His sons and His daughters. We're born of Him. Therefore, we have his DNA, we have his name, and we are now his representatives. And that character is going to overflow, ought to be overflowing in our lives and then being demonstrated to other people's lives because we are born of him. His seed remains in us. Therefore, it is out of character for us to live unholy lives, right? Because our God is holy. So it is out of character for a professing believer to live a life of consistent unrepentance. Right? It is out of character, according to the book of 1 John, that a professing believer would be someone who does not love. Right? Because that is a mark of God. God is loving. God is holy. We are to be like that. Because He is that. So what is our love for God to look like? Well, it's kind of obvious. I read the text before I gave you the answer. But it's obedience, right? And this is love for God. To keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Yikes, that one's a hard one, right? Or to live for His glory and not our not ourselves, right? Second Corinthians five fifteen, and He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised again. First Corinthians ten thirty one. So no matter what you do, do it all for the glory of God. So what is our love for others supposed to look like? So our love for God is we're living for His glory because that's His highest good. And obedience. What is, what is our, our love? Because it reflects God's love, right? Because God is this amazingly loving God. So in light of how God has demonstrated Himself as the loving God in the gospel. How are we to reflect that love to other people? What is our love supposed to look like? 
same kind of love that Christ showed us um, should be unconditional. Matthew talks about the way people are going to know us as believers is that by us loving one another. And if they don't see us loving one another, they aren't seeing Christ loving us. But it has to be, of course, it's not the perfect love that Christ showed us, but it has to be an unconditional love. You know, that means when someone does us wrong, we turn the other cheek. Jim didn't exhaust. That was a good answer, but he didn't exhaust it. So, <laughs> Betty, you look deep in thought. I was just thinking to show the fruits of the spirit to other people. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted or compassionate, forgiving one another. Sacrificial, 1 John 3. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And then he goes on to kind of give examples of how that would look what that would look like. Anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need but has no pity on them? How can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with just words or speech but with actions and in truth. So love is not only sacrificial but it's sacrificial for the benefit of another person, right? 1 Peter 1 um, doesn't use these words, but when you dive into the like the Greek of it, the idea is in an intense and enduring love. It says, now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, in other words, you've repented and believed, you've, you've uh, aligned yourself with the gospel, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Love one another deeply, like to the end. Full intensity, full board, and never giving up, never stopping, always and forever kind of love. And then Jesus epitomized loving the unlovely, right? In Romans 12, which I think Pastor Ken preached on a couple weeks ago, it says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that, in Paul, reflects Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where he says, You've heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
pray God's blessing, his favor on those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Remember that whole idea of we're born of God, therefore we reflect his name and we reflect his character, and we are a conduit of his love to other people. Well, here this same idea is coming to bear. We love our enemies. We bless our enemies and those who persecute us because we are His sons. We are sons of the Father who is in heaven. And they even give an example. Jesus says, For He, the Father, causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He's nice to both the good and the bad. We ought to be loving to the lovely and the unlovely. And then Jesus gets a little bit more kind of to the heart, which is what he does in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And those are the scum of the earth. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, again, in that context, the scum of the earth, do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, what Jesus is getting at here, he's like, loving those who love you is a simple endeavor that everybody does. There's nothing uniquely Christian about that. Now, loving your enemies, those who persecute you, loving those that are your thorn in your flesh, now that is uniquely Christian. Because that is supernatural. That only comes from being born of God and having the Spirit of God within you. So last question, and you have to answer. So based on all that we've discussed and teased out, how then would you define love? How then would you define love? What is love? <clears throat> Putting the interest of someone else in front of your yourself. Is that what Kenny said? <laughs> Putting the interests of another pastor before yourself. Sorry. Completely selfless. Selfless. So whatever our definition of love is, it has to be um, be capable of um, being consistent with God's love for us and His His command for us to love Him back and love others and even love within marriage. Like, so how does all that work? I mean, because our culture, if you were to walk up and down the street and say, well, what's love? Or if you just watch TV, right? Well, I've fallen in love. Well, yeah, we all say that, right? I also say I love nachos and cheese. But I, <laughs> and, 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 and I might be able to apply a biblical definition of love to nachos and cheese because I would sacrifice myself... <laughs> 
for the sake of eating nachos and cheese, but I think that's somehow self-serving and probably doesn't work quite right. But you get the point, right? We we have this very like lame, um, inadequate definition of love or idea of love, right? Like love is warm and fuzzy feelings. I mean, how how many of us feel uh, feel strong feelings towards our enemies? Oh, we all feel strong feelings towards our enemies, but it's to crush them, not to right. We don't feel warmth of our heart towards them to to be a to do good things to them, right? But but we're called to love, so. The idea of love being driven by a feeling, I think, is unbiblical. Anyone have any thoughts about that? Argue back to me, it's okay. I mean, I'm not saying that love is devoid of feeling. So. If we're talking about a love your enemies, uh, the unnatural love you were talking about a few minutes ago, if it was based on feelings almost every time you go the wrong way, because your feelings towards those who are not lovely and who have a complete disinterest in you are usually angst. Anger. I mean, how many parents here ever feel like disciplining their children? I don't know about you, but I've never wanted to do that. I hate it. But I do it because I love them. Or how many of us really have this strong desire uh, to confront a friend none of us <laughs> I mean unless we're just you know super gung-ho about you know being the corrector of all I mean none of us enjoy that it's not a fun job so I think biblical love is not devoid of feeling, but biblical true love. God, in other words, let's put it, let's couch the idea of feelings this way. Do you think that God sent Jesus uh, that that act of love was initiated by his feelings towards rebellious people? that's the right word. Right? His love was a sovereign choice. It certainly uh, we can't imagine him not that choice not being accompanied by feelings, right? Feelings riding along with this decision but it was first a decision. I think a really good way to what it would be I think in most cases people get married because of feelings 
they stay married and happily married because of choice. They have to choose. They have to intentionally love a person or it ain't going to happen because you don't continue to love them or continue to have feelings for them once the arguments start, once the disagreements start, no matter what the subject of the disagreement is. You have to say in your heart, I'm going to love this person no matter what they are. And it doesn't make a difference if you are getting that back to you. that love is a choice. And the feelings, uh, I mean, like, let's put that in the spiritual context of, let's say, our relationship with God. We might not have that warm affection, right, or that passion, necessarily, like, right off the bat. But as we make the hard, right choices to obey, oftentimes isn't always the case, but oftentimes the affections and the feelings follow the, the choice. Rather than if we're driven by our feelings and then our choices follow, we are in some we're gonna get into some really murky water. But we must make God honoring uh, choices and allow those affections to follow. So um John, I believe you said a, a definition something like this: biblical love is the sacrifice of self for the for the good of the person you love. Uh, there's an author named Vadi or Vodi Balcom. I don't know how to say his name exactly right, but he has a longer definition. But I think it incorporates all the things that we've been talking about. He says biblical love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. So biblical love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. And then he adds in a couple little things in in brackets and he says, biblical love is an act of the will. It's a choice. Accompanied, not led by emotion. That leads to action. It's proved by your efforts on behalf of its object. And when he says on behalf of the object, that's in the best interest of that object. I think this definition... Like proves itself out. This is how God has loved us, right? He has made a choice accompanied by emotion that has led him to action for our good. And he has called us to love him back. And so how do we do that? We make choices that are accompanied, ideally accompanied, even though sometimes they're not, accompanied by passion, affection, emotion, that move us to obedience on behalf of God, which is, what's the good of God? It's His glory. And the same proves true for our love for others. We make a choice, like Jim was saying in the context of marriage, or we make in the context of work, or our kids, or whatever. We make a choice 
accompanied by emotion but never led by emotion that leads to the right action that is going to benefit the person we love. That's how God has demonstrated his love towards us. And God's love is amazing. It is truly amazing that we would be called the children of God when we were slaves and orphans. And all we can do is say thank you. So let's do that, and then let's go home. God, we thank you. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you that you would call us your children, that you would be our Father, and that we would be your people, and that you have done such a great work that you've sacrificed yourself, you've made a choice, not led by emotion, but certainly accompanied with it, to act in our best interest, and that was of great cost to you. God, would we, as children who have been born into your family, who bear your name, who who have your spirit living within us, would we demonstrate and represent your love well? to all the people in our lives. Selfless, sacrificial, other-centered love that brings you glory and is um, bringing good to others. In your name we pray.